Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this episode, Brian Gorman interviews Dr. Rachel M.K. Headley, CEO of Rose Group International, on the topic of IX leadership, create high five cultures and guide transformation. In part two of this three-part series, we continue from our discussion of organizational culture and culture types and delve into IX leadership, high five cultures, transformations, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to this podcast with Change Management Review. I am Brian Gorman. I'm with Dr. Rachel M.K. Headley, co-author of IX Leadership, Create High Five Cultures and Guide Transformation. In part one of this podcast series, you introduced a simple four-quadrant model for understanding culture. In part two, we're going to look at how to apply that model during transitions. Again, I want to quote from your book, IX Leadership. You and your co-author, Meg, write, every leader should be, number one, developing, seeking, and building high-five cultures. And since high-intensity is the hallmark of business, every leader should be, number two, guiding their team through transformations. These are the most critical skills for today's leadership. Let's begin with the name of the book, Rachel. IX Leadership, Create High Five Cultures and Guide Transformation. What do you mean by IX Leadership? Well, the funny thing about the leadership piece, the IX Leadership stands for internal experience. And that actually came out of the tech space where there's a focus on, well, it started with UX, which is user experience. That's the interface that we have on our apps and our, you know, software. And then um, CX arose out of that, which is customer experience. And so many of us, and that has spread beyond tech now, and so many organizations are worried about customer experience because that, of course, customers are our connection to the problems we solve, our direct revenue, um, bottom line um, issues. And we were in a meeting with a big tech firm and they were talking about how they were struggling with their customer experience and all the training they were doing. They'd done a lot. They'd invested huge millions of dollars, huge amount of money into creating um, this sort of flow so that customers have a good experience and, and evaluating their experience and all this stuff. But at the same time, they were telling us that they're struggling with implementing it because they had this huge transition or huge turnover. Um, they didn't, they couldn't retain employees for long enough to really get them to stick. There was a huge amount of training on this customer experience and it just came as a light bulb to us. We said, well, if you would focus on your the internal experience of your employees, then they're going to take care of your customers. You might need to provide them what you need them to do, but if you take care of your people, then of the host of other challenges that we often see in every company, whether it's productivity, customer relationships, sales, um, on-time delivery, retention, all of those things that we struggle with individually really come down to 
what is the internal experience of your people and is that an experience that they are willing to that they're excited about they're going to commit to and that they want to see every single day thank you rachel and what do you mean by a high five culture well the fun part about high five culture is that i think everyone in their mind knows what that is for them and you know for me a high five culture i'm a fixer remember from our last podcast i'm a fixer which means i like chaos and i love people i'm i'm totally i'm socially connected i cannot i do not enjoy working on my own as an individual contributor so um for me a high five culture is a place where i come to work everyone's excited to see each other everyone is passionate about the mission everyone is thrilled to be there and it has very little to do with how much they're compensated and um, what kind of benefits package they have. Although, of course, I would always advocate to take care of your people in those areas also. But we have seen high five cultures in places that are minimum wage employees. Um, and then we have seen very dysfunctional cultures at very high end uh, compensation companies. So um, for us, it's less to do with that. And it's all to do with it's almost like, think of a, like a soundtrack. So if you are like, think of Star Wars or Superman, like a John Williams score where you just, you feel great. It makes you happy. It makes you excited and passionate about um, what's going on uh, versus, you know, uh, a funeral dirge or some very sad and depressing music, whatever that is for you. Um, for me, it's Wagner opera. I just don't like it. Uh, but you know, so that's my that's my my bad version. But for me, I want to walk in. It's it's that sense, you know. Everyone says it feels different. So I want to feel like I want to give people high fives, and that's what it really is. It's 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 everyone knows what it is when they have it, and they know what it is when they don't have it for sure. Great, thank you. In the section of the book where you're discussing transitions, you write, I've learned that powerful leaders encourage their teams to see beyond their perceptions. Having a strong internal experience means setting your people up for greatness, not completeness, not for the best of their abilities, but to see possibilities for themselves that they haven't yet imagined. Show them someone who has achieved something great help them imagine themselves in that role, and then watch how quickly they rewrite their story. More and more, we're hearing about the importance of story in organizations and the vital role story can play in change. In my own transformation coaching, I guide my clients in exactly the same use of story as you're encouraging leaders to do. Can you talk briefly about the use of story by IX leaders? and perhaps give us an example of that. Yeah, story is so important. And, you know, it, it ties into the visualization side of our, the way our brains work. And whether, you know, it's, it's spoken in, in words, depending on the, the, the group or the kind of industry you're in. So, you know, we, we talk about it as in, in some parts of the, um, a professional transformation space. Sometimes it's manifesting. Um, in a corporate world, we talk more about goal setting. Um, but at the end of the day, or maybe it's an Olympic skier and you're, you're supposed to visualize your downhill skiing and winning the gold medal and what you're going to do. 
it's the same uh, process, no matter who, where, and what you're talking about. So what we really try to do is we really try to put yourself in the vision of the future that you want to create. And, and frankly, even that first step is, is neglected often, you know, in, in this, in the corporate world of strategic planning and that, you know, strategic plans that sit on a shelf and never get looked at. Um, and, you know, sort of mission and values that might be put on a wall, but no one actually lives them. You know, what we really try to do is we, you know, we try to have people focus on where they want to be and what life do you want to, whether it's, if it's individual coaching, it's what, what life do you want to create? Where, what do you actually want your life to be? And, and for a corporation or a business or an organization, it's about what do you want this place to look like? to feel like, and maybe it's five years from now. It's nice to sort of take, take you out of the present day. It's hard for people to, to think, okay, well, if, if we're talking six months from now, there's so many problems right now, we couldn't possibly get there. So, so sometime in the future that feels close enough to achieve, but not thinking, not being embedded in the problems of today. Um, you know, what, what does this place look like, feel like, um, how much money do you want to be making? How much, um, how many people do you want working here? What, what does it feel like in the office? Um, who, what kinds of people do you want working here? And we, what, have you won an award? Um, you know, all of those sorts of things to create that story for that company and all of the aspects of it. Because if you don't know where you're going, um, you can't make the day-to-day decisions on culture and even what you're going to chase and how you're going to do it unless you know where you're aiming. I mean, you make those decisions, but you don't really know if it's going to get you where you want to go. And so for us, that storytelling is really about establishing who we are as a company, even if we're not there yet. You know, it's sort of like when you go off to college, um, a lot of times that you might go off to college and not know what you want to be when you come out of it or what kind of job you want. I went to college and didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I was going to be better prepared for my future. I was going to be uh, better read. Uh, I was going to know more. I was going to be able to be more engaged in the world. And I knew I would have to make a decision about what I wanted to be. And even though I knew all of those good things, I was really kind of adrift until I decided what it was I was actually gunning for, shooting for, what, what my goal was. And so you can do good things without that story, but until you have that story identified and sort of mapped, it's very, very difficult to make the choices that get you there uh, more directly, pro- productively, and with less pain, certainly. Thank you. In your work, you apply the Kurtz change transition model. I've long held that in change management, any model or methodology based on sound principles of how humans respond to change can bring value. That said, until I read your book, I'd never heard of the Kurtz model. Could you tell us a little bit about what the model is? Yeah, the curse change transition model is actually arose out of a, a model that was developed in the 80s 
but had no one had really published on it or explored it or um, really used it in any kind of academic way. And, and I was just fascinated by it. The, the transition model, this version, and I agree with you, uh, Brian, everybody that uses models, we're just trying to simplify a complex environment to have some sort of understanding or useful skills or tools that come out of it. And, and I feel like this transition model does a little better job of explaining the opportunity of change. You know, so many, uh, many, many models, I should say, of change have that sort of U-shaped model where you have the change event, it's this huge decline, everyone's upset and angry, and then you kind of get over it, and then you basically crawl back out of the pit, and then you get to your new normal. And that's essentially um, what this model says, too, with one great exception, and that is it focuses on sort of the bottom of that of the of the energy curve. So as you decline and as you resist change, at some point you let go of what was and you turn to look forward toward what's next. And in that time, right after you let go, and this feeds back into that story question, you're not sure. So the old story is no longer working. You finally decided that that's not the way it is anymore. And now you're looking forward and you're not really sure what your story is yet. The fascinating thing is until you work through some of those opportunities or options, you are really open to new ideas, new challenges, different ways of doing things. So, so think of, I always love using personal examples for this because it so it resonates with so many people. Um, a lot of times when you, let's say you are in, let's say you're out of a, a big relationship. Let's say a, a, a long-term relationship or um, I personally have been divorced. So when I uh, became single again and, and I became a single mother at 40, which I was really kind of thrown by, I never of course imagined I would be. And so I had no idea what my life would be like as a single person with a daughter at 40, professional. And so I was really open to anything. I was open to a new job, uh, moving, um, getting a new house. I built, I took an old uh, broken down 1898 farmhouse and I gutted it and redid it. I Do you, do you buy a new car? You get a dog. You um, decide you're going to try new restaurants. You date people you might not date otherwise. And so it's crazy how much we pack in. All, all of a sudden, we let go of one piece of our life and that opens up possibilities for all other things. Um, and that's, we call that the innovation phase because we're really open to new ideas then. And in an organizational structure, this is where people, uh, this is where teams coalesce. When we say, you know, we got our team through sort of the crucible and we came out the other side a better team, this is when it happens because everyone gets into that transition phase together they all see things in a new way. They all start talking about the same story. They all buy into the story together and they come out powerful, uh, passionate team on the other side. And it is a miracle to witness. And I think that's the key thing that's missing from most transition models 
And I think that's why most leaders will put their head down and they say, okay, we're rolling out this big change. It's just going to stink. It's going to be miserable for three years. But at the end of three years, we'll all be better and it'll be over with. And they are throw, those leaders are throwing away the opportunity to not only have a more innovative team, but also create a very highly engaged and very tightly knit team. And that's, that's why I love this transition model. Rachel, in the first podcast, you introduced us to four different uh, types of individuals in the culture. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the Kurtz transition model applies to each of the different culture types? Yeah, and that's, that's the interesting thing about the, the culture types and the Kurtz change transition model which I will acronymize into KCTM. It's just easier to say. <laughs> but um, so the funny thing about the culture types is we actually kind of backed into the culture types from the transition model piece because what, what I saw boots on the ground and, and my co-author Meg Mankey saw boots on the ground is that different people react differently to change. And we know that, we've all seen it, and we all know it to be true. Some of us have part life partners that are um, resistant to change or more eager for change than we are, and that creates tension. Um, it's just, it's such a known common experience for everybody. But there was no real typing system that felt like you could actually start being strategic as a company or as a business around understanding your people and how they deal with change. And that's so we kind of backed into the culture type assessment, starting with the transition model stuff. So what we saw, so there's four culture types. Um, we'll start with stabilizers. That's where we started uh, on the last podcast. So stabilizers are uh, love, love order. They're very sensitive to social change. And so they're the most resistant to change. They have the longest um, letting go phase. They hold on the longest. They also feel the pain most acutely of any of the culture types. And they have a very small transition phase because frankly, once they let go of what was, they want to get to the new thing as fast as possible. And, and the great thing about stabilizers is they go from one stable, uh, stable air environment. And then if there's a change, they will go to, when they go to the next one, they're going to lock into it. They're not going to be the ones that fade back or change their mind. They're going to get to that new phase and they're going to stay there. So um, that's how stabilizers move through change. Um, the, the, the KCTM for organizers, um, they have a, a longer decline because they like, uh, they have a long decline, but not as long as stabilizers. Um, they like, like order, so they do not like the chaos that comes with change. But they are also the ones that want to figure out how to actually sort it out. So they want to create chaos or create order out of that chaos. So they're the ones that you can help, you can ask to help figure out the strategy and the timing and the schedule and, and all of that around chaos. Uh, so, and what they have is, so they have a decline. It's not as um, emotionally challenging for organizers. Um, and then they have a little bit longer transition phase and then they get out very quickly to the next, um, the new normal fixers um, and their case CTM. We've um, so fixers 
have a little bit of a decline usually because they're worried about how it's going to affect everybody. And they worry about that most, most of all, because fixers like chaos. The challenge with fixers is what they'll try to do is they'll try to, they'll have a lot of energy around the new idea and changing things, but then they'll realize that not everyone's on board and that it might not be a good solution for everybody. So they have this wildly swinging transition model and their innovation phase is, has very high peaks and very low lows. And so managing people like this and leading people like this can be very challenging because they're all, they can feel like they're all over the place. Uh, but by and large, they like the chaos. So your big challenge with fixers is sort of keeping them on uh, pointed in the right direction because they're going to be willing to do lots of different things and take on lots of different ideas. Uh, and then independents are also loving chaos. Their change transition model is also wildly swinging, but they don't have as many lows, frankly. Um, that's probably why we see a lot of entrepreneurs sort of chronically, they have the swings up and down, but they're almost seem chronically ridiculously optimistic because they just don't, they don't feel the pain that others might be feeling. They feel the pain perhaps in it's not working as fast as they'd like, or they tried one thing, it doesn't work. And so they're the fail fast, start again people, you know, they're going to, they love that chaos. So they have very little lows around, around change. So they're, what, what, but what, of course, is the most interesting is how these types interact uh, with each other and why they drive each other crazy. Um, but the individuals are um, fascinating on their own. Great. Thank you. That wrap, wraps up the second part of our podcast with Dr. Rachel M.K. Headley. In the final part, we're going to be talking about the IX mindset. Thank you again, Rachel. Thank you, Brian. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast with Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and Dr. Rachel M.K. Headley. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.